This morning, um, especially if you're a visitor with us, we are continuing in our series, Love Overflows. Since Eastertide, or since Easter, we've been traveling through scripture passages, um, especially in the letters, the epistles, that teach us, show us what God's love looks like in our lives and how we show God's love in our life. This series was actually inspired by our Gems Sunday, by our Gems girls and their theme that they traveled with this past year of love overflows. So this morning, we are continuing that series. We have one more Sunday to go after this next week. But today, this morning, we're turning to the letter to the Colossians. So we're going to go to Colossians chapter 3. And we're starting at verse 1, and we're going to continue through verse 14. And as you turn there, and before we read God's word, let us pray for the Spirit's illumination. Please pray with me. Our faithful Father in heaven, send us your spirit this morning as we open your word, as we listen for your voice, as we listen to what Colossians 3 has to tell us about your love for us and how we are to live in that love. We thank you for your word. May it dwell in us richly. May it form and shape us so that we look more and more like your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. So the word of the Lord from Colossians 3, verse 1 through 14. Since then, we're starting right in the middle of the letter. Paul just keeps going. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life that you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness, humility, 
gentleness and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And over all of these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. like? Who, who does she look like? It, it seems that when you have a child, that is the first mystery that folks need to figure out for you. Who does she look like? Does she favor her dad's features or her mom's? Does she have Aunt Mildred's chin? Oh, poor child. Or does she have Opa's nose? Usually with a word of, don't worry, she'll grow into it. And in each family on each side is usually clamoring for a bit more of the family resemblance. Especially if you are like my daughter, the only grandchild on either side. Who does she look like? And family resemblance isn't just when a child is born that it's important. In the Christian Reformed Church, family resemblance allows you to clump people together. When you bump into someone, not in your own community, Maybe you're going to a Christian Reformed church somewhere else, and they may not know your name, they may not know who you're directly related to, but they sure know from your height or your hair or your chin or your forehead that you are a, insert family name here. Oh, you must be a DeVries. I see it. Oh, oh are you related to the Brockville Mitamas? You have to be, because you look just like my friend Joe. Family resemblance family resemblance. It can be a pretty big deal. And here, in Paul's letter to the Colossians, Paul is getting at family resemblance too. For Paul, as a pastor, his, his pastoral prayer, again and again, in letter after letter, to every church he taught, writes to, to every Christian that he's speaking to, his prayer is always a variation on the same one. The most famous version of this is in Ephesians 3, right? That rooted in love, you understand the height and the depth and the, that beautiful prayer. Here in Colossians, we get a short version of it, pretty succinct. So if you flip over to chapter 226, you're going to see it. And it says, so then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted, built up in him, Strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Is it 126? I hear pages turning. Two verse six. Thank you. Which is actually my manuscript, and I just read it wrong. Two verse six. I heard pages flipping. I'm like, mm, that doesn't sound right. Let's read it again. Paul's pastoral prayer. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. Rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught. And overflowing with thankfulness. Paul, in every letter that he writes, builds on a variation of this prayer, of this instruction to his people. And Paul, here in Colossians, even in this brief glimpse that we're getting of this letter, 
Paul teaches us a bit more about what growing up and maturing looks like in faith. And he does so by exploring this question, who do you look like? Now Paul is not fussing about noses and chins and hairlines. Paul is preoccupied with character and virtue and actions. Who do you look like? Who do you live like? Who or what does your life resemble? Now we're just jumping right here into Colossians chapter 3, but by the time that Paul gets to this part of his letter, he has already laid out a powerful and poetic vision of the gospel, of what it means to belong to God and Jesus Christ. He reminds the Colossians, he's building this argument, he reminds them at the heart of the gospel is a simple fact that we were enemies of God. And by no virtue of our own, by no earning of our own, God has reached out to us in Jesus Christ, claiming us as his own. Or as Paul so beautifully puts it, God has moved us out of the dominion of darkness and he has put us into the kingdom of light. So Paul establishes what the gospel is. And part of why he's writing to the Colossians is that in the Colossian church, there's, there's a bunch of new teachers and prophets who are teaching something contrary to that simple fact that God has claimed us as his own through no action of our own. These so-called teachers and prophets are teaching that in order to follow Jesus fully, in order to be truly loved by God, well, there's a little list of to-dos. There's a list of severe disciplines and rituals and exacting rules that you need to follow in order for you to want to know Jesus and be loved by his Father. Kind of like they're asking everyone in the Colossian church to sign up for a CrossFit spiritual exercise. It's going to dictate your entire life, what you eat, what you don't eat, what you worship, when to worship, what to give up, what to focus on. It is rigid and exacting. And Paul, Paul's telling them, that's not the gospel that you have received from me. That burdensome, burdensome list of rules and regulations, that is not the gospel. And here in Colossians 3, we pick up where Paul is trying to remind them of who they are and who they are not. And what does it look like to live a virtuous life in Jesus Christ? Which is why Paul says, he begins by remember. Remember that you have been raised with Christ, so set your mind on him. This means that you must kill and uproot, strong language, kill and uproot anything in your life that doesn't belong to this new resurrection life. Those are things like sexual immorality, lust, greed, idolatry. And, and not only that, but you're also not someone who lies. That's not who you are. You're not someone who slanders their neighbor or the person in the pew next to you. You're not that kind of person. That's not who you are any longer. So don't act like it. The heart of Paul's argument is in verse 10. But we're going to start a little bit in verse 9 first. 
Right after he's telling us, don't lie. He picks up here. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices, you have put on the new self. This new self is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Here, there's no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. You have put on a new self, a new self that is being renewed in the image of its creator. Now that language should sound super familiar to those of us who have traveled together here at Community CRC through Lent, talking about baptism. Old self, new self, being renewed, transformed, dying, rising, being reminded that in baptism in Jesus Christ there's no difference that makes a difference other than Christ who is in all and is all. Paul, as usual, is going on about baptism. If you're wondering what Paul's talking about, go back to baptism and eventually you'll get to where he's going. And the imagery here, putting on, putting off the old self, putting on the new self, it has its roots in some early baptismal practices of the early church. Now, whether it's picked up from Paul here or he's alluding to it, we're not sure. You, when I describe this practice, you're going to be very grateful that it's no longer the fashion in the church. When you're going to get baptized as an adult convert, you'd come to the water, come to the water, so far, okay. You'd remove your clothes. Strip on down. You're going to go into that water naked. And you'd go through the water. Your old clothes would be left behind. You're going to go down into the water and out. And on the other side of that baptism, of walking through that water, are your brothers and sisters holding a new set of clothes for you. A new robe, shiny clean, ready for you. Old clothes, new clothes, old life, new life in the waters of baptism and of Jesus Christ making the difference between the two. Now, we don't go in for naked baptisms. Thanks be to God. <laughs> but the imagery remains deeply powerful. In Christ, in our baptism, we are new people. We should all be head nodding right now. Yep, we got this. This is what we know. Okay. A new self. A God's adopted son. God's adopted daughter. Done and done. Done. But then we have this language of this process. You've put on a new self, gone through those waters, but then that new self is being renewed. Wait, what? Renewed in knowledge of the image of its creator. And that, that language is of an ongoing process of a growing up, of a maturing, which gets back to Paul's pastoral prayer for every single Christian that you grow up in him. And that's a process that takes a lifetime. And Paul, in this passage, is describing that process, that ongoing process of putting to death that old self again and again, whenever it rears its head, and remembering, reminding yourself that that's not who you are anymore. Don't act like that any longer. That's not who you are. You are more than that, and you are not just that. Kill off the knee-jerk reaction to anger. Kill off the knee-jerk reaction to lies. You are not a liar. 
You are not consumed by anger. That's not who you are. Practice the virtue of compassion, because that is who you are. Be kind, because that is who you are. And why? Why do we do this? Because when we put off the old self and live as we are in this new self, we get to look more and more like Jesus. Our family resemblance gets stronger and stronger, and people can catch a glimpse of who Jesus is by being with us. Just like when someone looks at you when you're off somewhere else and says, I know you. You're related to so-and-so. We want our family resemblance to Jesus Christ to be that palpable. That someone can point us and say, I know you. You, you look like someone I know. Our goal as Christians is to grow up looking more and more like our brother Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, Paul writes, the image of the creator. So be more like Jesus. Got it? It's not that hard. We know that's not true. It's as simple as going out and being more loving, right? Going out and being more patient. Going out and being more kind. What would Jesus do? And do it. Christian living done. We know how hard that is. We know how hard that is for ourselves. And we definitely know how hard that is for our neighbors, and our family members, people that we love who hurt us, and we hurt them. We know how difficult it is to be more like Jesus. We know in our knee-jerk reactions and our quickness to anger, to lies, to slander, to whatever your particular poison is, you know how naturally that comes. How difficult it can be to choose kindness over anger, love over hate, compassion over judgment. The church would have a very different reputation in many parts of North America if it was easy to be like Jesus. And there's a particular way of teaching this passage, of leaving it here, where we can hear Paul's teaching here in Colossians 3, very much like the false teachers he's pushing against. Because all of a sudden, this Christian living, this Christian life becomes a pretty strident list of things to do and not to do of rules and regulations. It can't be what Paul is talking about. It can't be where Paul leaves us. This month's Christianity Today, the cover article caught my eye. Not necessarily because of its amazing theological <clears throat> quote on the front, it had a giant donut with rainbow sprinkles. 
which made me instantly want a donut, and then made me instantly guilty because I realized the article was all about self-control and temptation. So I went, got a donut, and sat down and read the article. And, and when I was reading the article, I discovered that what the sociologist, the author of this article, was unpacking is very similar to what Paul is unpacking here in Colossians. The, the article covers some very interesting research about Christians specifically in self-control, Christians specifically in temptation, Christians specifically in willpower. And he, he actually has a bracket of, depending on how many times you attend church in a month, where your self-control is, I'm not gonna share with you his findings, you have to go read it yourself. What caught my attention, aside from the donut, was his unpacking of what it means to practice virtue. Practice virtue. We practice virtue, we make big changes in our lives and in our practices, not by going big, changing on a dime, having big-term commitments, and elaborate routines, we change by going small. We change, and this, this is really the technical term, tiny habits, which just delights me. You may not find it delightful, I find it delightful. Tiny habits, no big words, tiny habits. That's the technical term for what he's talking about. Change comes through tiny habits. So think of New Year's resolutions. We've all been there on December 31. We have big plans for January 1. Things are going to change. Our life is going to change. There's something major. Either I'm finally going to exercise every day, or I'm going to cut out alcohol or smoking or high fructose corn syrup, whatever you want. And I'm finally going to learn how to knit or paint or bullet journal tomorrow. Everything is going to change tomorrow. And then by January 5, if we're being generous, things haven't really changed all that much. Nothing has really changed. Life has gone back to normal, and you just kind of end up feeling like a big, fat failure. According to the author of the article, approaching big change like that is a setup for failure. You will always fail at that. It's just not how we're built. We are creatures of habit, and changing our habit is brutally, notoriously difficult. So in order to go big, in order to make change, you have to go small. You have to go into tiny habits, which don't sound too threatening. By way of example, the author, Brad, shares about how he wanted to start exercising every morning, which starts sounding like one of those big, big changes that you're gonna fail at. He wanted to exercise first thing every morning. But instead of just launching into a full-blown 12-step, multiple-repetition exercise routine after his coffee, he broke it down into a single, simple beginning step. For the first little while, Brad got up, took his vitamins, went to his sunroom, and did one single burpee. Now, I know what a burpee is for my CrossFit husband. I will not demonstrate for you. But you squat, and then you jump up and try and touch the sky. Yes? Yeah, kind of. Brian's saying kind of. We're going to go with it. <laughs> Obviously, I don't do burpees. And that's it. Brad was done. He went, had his coffee, told himself, good job. That was it. 
His big change, I'm going to exercise every morning, full routine, starts with a single step. Go in the sunroom, do one burpee, go have coffee. Success for the first day. And he says in the article, he's been building, building in more repetitions, building in more exercises, until he's not quite there yet, but he's almost there to having a big, full exercise routine every morning that he can do, that's not failing. He's changed his habits. Big change through tiny habits. So when we hear Paul's encouragement, and by encouragement, I mean his, he's telling you what to do, to kill off your old habits of lying, of addiction, of greed, of idolatry, and to pick up new habits of love and kindness and patience and forgiveness, we can approach it like a New Year's resolution. January 1, all or nothing. We can start out saying, today is the day I'm going to love everyone just like Jesus. And you might get out the door that morning, fulfilling that. You might make it onto the road as you get going to work. And then someone's going to cut you off and you're going to fail that day. You're not going to love everyone like Jesus. Or you can take it slowly. You can cultivate tiny habits of love, tiny habits of kindness, tiny habits of patience, those hardest ones, one step at a time, one habit at a time, slowly shedding that old self that doesn't look like Jesus, and slowly but surely and faithfully looking more and more like Jesus. Which is an answer to Paul's pastoral prayer. That we grow up. That we grow into a stronger resemblance of our brother Jesus. The image of the creator. Unlike the false teachers, infiltrating the church in Colossae, selling a long list of rituals and requirements for the spiritual life. Paul reminds us, we're not doing this to earn God's love. We're not doing this to earn any grace. Paul reminds us that we are already loved, which is why he says, you, you are God's chosen people. You are holy. You are dearly loved. The call to grow up in faith is not that we're good with God. It's not how this whole grace thing works. Thanks be to God. We're called to grow up in our faith, shedding the old habits, shedding that old self, looking more and more like Jesus because we're already part of the family. We already have that family resemblance. We already belong and we are already loved. It is a matter of growing up. It's a matter of growing up into that resemblance. 
Who do you look like? Who do you look like? So may we grow more and more in the image of our Savior, our brother Jesus. May we look more and more like him because he is the one who loves us with a kind love, a patient love, a compassionate love, and a fierce and never-ending love. May we grow into looking like that. Amen? Amen. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come before you with Colossians 3 on our minds and in our hearts. We come before you desiring to look more like your son, Jesus Christ, but knowing the pull of the old self. We ask for your spirit's help as we desire, as we seek, as we try to live looking more and more like your son, Jesus, trusting and knowing that you already love us and that you've already given us your spirit. We thank you that we belong to you, your sons and daughters, that we are part of the family. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.